0: So, how many of you have seen the movie Aladdin? And I don't mean the new one, I mean the cartoon one with Robin Williams. Two people? Okay, yeah, thank you. Great. So in the early 90s, this movie came out, and my mom took me to the Gem Theater to see Aladdin. And uh, the second, second scariest part of the whole movie was The Cave of Wonders, you can ask me later what I thought the scariest part was, but uh, the Cave of Wonders, does anyone remember what the Cave of Wonders was? That large, big, huge tiger head thing out of sand, and you can only go in the Cave of Wonders if you were worthy enough, and eventually, Aladdin kind of gets tricked into it, but he gets to the Cave of Wonders, and he's, he's worthy. So him and Abu, his monkey, go into this Cave of Wonders, and there was one rule Do not touch anything but the lamp. There's a lamp in there. I won't spoil it for you, but uh, there's something in that lamp. Uh, Anyway, so not allowed to touch anything. So they go through, and, and they're holding their resolve. There's lots of treasures and just amazing things, and they don't touch anything, and they get to the very end, and there's the lamp, and Aladdin goes up to grab the lamp, And he looks behind him, and there's Abu the monkey. He's looking at this massive diamond thing, and he just can't help himself. He just cannot do it. He needs it. So he grabs it, and then the whole cave just collapses in on them, and the movie ends. No. Uh, (laughs) Collapses in. Now, not many people know this, but Aladdin got the idea from Joshua chapter 7 not actually true, but I'm going to say it is. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Joshua 7. Uh, We're going to be there. We are continuing on in our story uh, from last week. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, Joshua 7, I'm going to read the first five verses. It'll also be on the screen, I believe, Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll read together. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabedee, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, "'Go up and spy out the land.' The men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack. So do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about thirty six of their men and chased them before the gate. As far as Sherberian and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So, our first point unfaithfulness leads to defeat. So, here we are, Joshua is stumped. They just experienced this amazing, great victory over Jericho, which we heard about. Uh, they were obedient to God and they followed through. So, what changed? this time around, what happened that this would happen to them, especially when it was like, we're only going to need a few thousand of us, this is easy pickings, you know, all the same pieces were in place, and it should have been easy, but it wasn't, Joshua sent the spies, just as before, things looked good, and they sent in the army to get the job done, but it didn't happen, so what was Joshua missing? First off, he forgot to consult his plans with God. Where they defeated Jericho with no casualties, here they were fighting a smaller city and they were already down 36 men. The Gospel Project says, as a result, the hearts of the people melted. This was an unfortunate reversal for Israel. Previously, the people of Jericho were the ones whose hearts melted after hearing about Israel. If Joshua would have inquired with the Lord, he would have found out just exactly what was going on. Instead, he goes full steam ahead like a dummy. Unfortunately, we do this all the time too, though. When I was five or so, my uh, father had a home office, and uh, he would do a lot of work, and he would do a lot of school on this computer, this this old IBM computer with uh, Windows 92. If anyone remembers Windows 92, great operating system. Uh, but one day after supper, I noticed that he left his computer on. I thought, oh, my father is silly, I'll go and help him out. Uh, so I went on down and I turned off his computer, shut it right down. And I also noticed that he left a floppy disk in the drive. So I yanked that out as well for good measure, put it on the desk and thought, great, I've just helped my father out, uh, saving money on energy in our house. Uh, But apparently, my father was in the middle or just near the end of a huge project he was working on, and he lost everything because I helped him. I was being so helpful. But perhaps I should have inquired with him first and shared my thoughts about what my plan was. Proverbs 16 says, the heart of man plans his way But the Lord establishes his steps. Without God leading us, we are hopeless. Not only just stumbling along, but completely defeated. We are done for. And of course, the misstep of Joshua was less significant than Achan's sin, but there is a level of responsibility on Joshua as the leader. Uh, and, And we'll see later how he responds to this. But I think we do this a little bit in church too. I know what God wants, everyone follow me, and let's get going. And meanwhile, we haven't asked God much, or we haven't asked him his thoughts or his plans, and we just start going. And the interesting part of the story is just how drastic one man's sin affected the whole community. And it's easy to think that our sin only affects us, but it so rarely just stops there. Obviously, it will always affect the relationship we have to God, but it often affects those around us your friends, your family, and, and your church. The Gospel Project puts it this way believers' sin can hamper their prayers, believers' sins can hamper their use of their spiritual gifts for the blessing and building up of the church, believers' sin can taint the reputation of the church and even God in the eyes of a community. Believer sins detract from efforts to share the gospel. Believer sin can cause people to doubt the transforming power of God through the gospel. Sin, no matter how small in our eyes, is a grave offense against God that carries consequences for us and others and requires God's judgment. All of Israel was implicated in Achan's unfaithfulness. Because he belonged to God's covenant people, he was part of the collective whole. And it's just like a a team or a sports team. All it takes is just one person to bring everyone down. Someone who's always negative or someone who's selfish or whatever. It only takes one to ruin it for everyone else. And this is the same for us today. We have to watch how we carry ourselves within the community, within Gospel Chapel and and, and the areas surrounding us here. And this, of course, is, is... a little bit different than, than the situation with, in Joshua, but I think there is something really important that we can learn from in Romans about what Jesus taught us uh, in regards to this. So Romans 5, I'm going to read for us, uh, starting in verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. leads to justification and life for all men. For as, one, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All those in Adam will experience death on account of his sin, but all those in Christ by faith receive the gift of righteousness and eternal life that he has secured for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And we will find ourselves defeated in life when we choose to live outside of the ways of Jesus. So look how the story continues on in Joshua 7. I'm going to start in uh, chapter 7, verse uh, 7. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? This is a really Fascinating prayer. Joshua sees this really close connection to God and God's people. Uh, This is what John Piper has to say about it in his book, Providence. Joshua's two concerns are inseparable in Israel's history and in the purpose of God's providence. Your people are about to be destroyed and your name is about to be demeaned. Implicit in Joshua's prayer is the twofold longing, save us, O God, and do it for your namesake. Get yourself great glory in getting us the victory. The purpose of God in this conquest was that all the peoples of the earth may know that the the hand of the Lord is mighty and that Israel might inherit the land and receive all God's mercies and cling to him and serve him with joy. I love this. God's glory can be and should be lining up with the success of the church not the success of just any one individual and what they feel should be done. It must be a community venture, and it must be tied to God. If God is glorified in what we do, we will also see his blessing. So number two, sin leads to judgment. Continuing on in Joshua chapter 7, verse 20. And Achan answered Joshua, "'Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, "'and this is what I did.'" When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath, and they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel." And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And They brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Acre. So after I read that, I thought, oh, I'm so thankful that this is the passage that Doug gave me. <laughs> it's a bit of a doozy. Uh but I was thinking about this, and we talked about this a few months ago, about God's uh, judgment and God's justice, uh, which is an interesting conversation. I want us to, to first start thinking about confession. It's a, it's a very interesting thing. I think it's a little bit of a lost art form uh, confession. I think the Catholics are a bit better at it, but they still don't quite get it. They're a bit off. Uh, so what is the, what's the point of confession? So first, John. Chapter 1, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So the Christian life is marked by the pursuit of righteousness, not pursuit of happiness, pursuit of righteousness. And yet for our failings, there is still forgiveness. It's really important. A forgiveness that's grounded in Christ's redemptive work. So confession reminds us that we are not meant to walk in darkness, but in light. We don't have to go around all alone and wallow in our sin, and we don't receive forgiveness of our sins from confessing them to any one other person. And I think there is a benefit to that, uh, though it's not that there's going to be forgiveness, but there is that accountability, there is that spurring on of one another. In Hebrews 10, it says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And in James 5, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And I think this is why it's so important for us to have one, two, three really close people in your life that you can trust and that you can rely on and who can help you through those ups and downs and that you can confess things to. In our passage today, we don't see this type of confession happening. You know, confession at its best comes from a place uh, and a desire to make things right with others and right with God, and at its worst, it comes from a place of guilt and just getting caught. Oh, I'm going to confess now because you caught me, but I, yeah, I did do it, so everything's fine now, uh, but that's not quite um, how it should be. So if you look at verse 21, uh, in our in our passage today, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, I hear they make very good cloaks. Uh, two hundred shekels of silver, a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels. Then I coveted them and I took them. How did Achan know that there was two hundred shekels? How did he know? Like he wasn't Rain Man. I don't know if you've seen that movie drop a whole box of toothpicks and he knows exactly how many, you know, Aiken saw there, but I'm sure he didn't go, oh, 200 for sure. How did he know he, he had to stoop down? He had to start to touch them, to look at them. How long do you think it took for him to look at these things before he decided that he was going to take them? You know, at, at some point, he must have sat there to count and to go, okay, what's the cost here? There's 200 shekels. What are my options? The Gospel Project again puts it this way. With nowhere to hide, Achan immediately confessed his guilt. I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. He had ignored Joshua's clear warning from the Lord in chapter 6, admitting I saw, I coveted, and I took. So Achan's confession of his sin at Jericho recalls Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden where she saw that the forbidden tree was good for food, that it was to be desired, to make one wise, and she took some of its fruit. You know, it's interesting, too, I never quite thought about it this way, but if God said, look, there's a tree over there, don't touch it, don't eat any fruit from it, everything else, fair game. And again, I'm not going to say that I was going to be better than Adam and Eve, but I feel like I'd be like, I don't, let's all stay away from that one tree. Like, can we build a huge wall around it or something? Let's just get away from that tree because God said it's no good. What was Eve doing <laughs> looking at the tree? So close to the tree, you know, ah, a little bit interested. And it's the same thing with Achan. It's, it's easy for us to think, you know, I never would have done that. I never would have eaten from the tree. Or, or I never would have taken something that was forbidden to me. But I think sometimes we can be just as guilty. You know, often more often than I'd like to admit, I do what will benefit me the most, not what's going to benefit everybody around me, maybe sometimes at the expense of others, and certainly at the expense of my relationship with God. You know, we may not all be thieves here. You know, we're not going into stores and taking things, though I did do that once on accident. It, It was an accident. I'll tell you that story another time. Uh, anyway, we may not actually just be thieves going around to steal things, but I think we still do steal things. We do have cravings and we, that should be resisted. We have these temptations that we should flee. You know, it's the classic example. If, if you're an alcoholic, don't go sit at the bar. Don't, don't go there. Don't put yourself in that position. So here's, here's a tip to help catch yourself in this if, if you think that you're, or if you're not sure. If you ever have to justify your actions and try to explain them, you kind of explain them away, but you explain them to others, uh, you may be stealing from someone. You may be taking advantage of someone. So, you know, I work hard all day. I just don't have any time or energy for the rest of my family. You know, I'm a hard worker, so, you know, I'm not going to do that. Uh, You know, it's not really stealing if I'm taking something from someone who's really rich. They're not even going to notice it. You're kind of justifying things there. I don't have time to read the Bible. I'm a busy guy. I've got lots going on. I'm a pastor. Who's got time to read the Bible when you're a pastor, dealing with so many things? It's ridiculous. Uh, You know, I've got got so much going on right now, and I just deserve to have what I desire, because I work hard, and life's difficult. But I don't think we ever have to justify serving God or others. You know, we never have to go and make an excuse for it, being like, oh, I was just just trying to pray more, leave me alone, you know, or just trying to read more. You know, another question that that maybe helps is to ask yourself, is this best for me or is it best for everyone around me? So obviously, since Achan hid all this stuff, it it makes it sound like he even buried it. Uh, I don't think that... He had the thought to go, I'm going to take this for everybody else. Like, I I see these things, and man, we could really use some upgrades in our armory. 200 shekels, that's going to get us a lot. Um, I'm going to give this cloak to Joshua from Shinar. Uh, No, I don't think so. It seems that his intentions was to take them for himself. And again, we have to ask ourselves and understand that on some level, we all crave something, and and that sin affects that, and it makes us addicted to things that in the end will harm us. And Achan knew what he had done, and he knew it was wrong. He knew it. He had to know that even as he was gathering these things up, he wasn't like, I think this will be okay. He, He knew as he was taking it, like, ah, I know what I'm doing, but I'm going to do it anyway. And sometimes our desire for things is so strong, it comes, it overcomes everything else. When I was uh, younger, I saw this bike in the window of Chain Reaction when Chain Reaction was downtown, the bike store, and it was this yellow GT, before GT went and sold to Walmart or something when they made good bikes. Uh, And so there it is, this yellow mountain bike, and I'm like, I have to have that bike. And that's all I could think about. Nothing else really mattered to me. I was probably a little bit shut off from even my relationships because all I could think about was how am I going to get money to get the bike? Now, was it wrong for me to want to have a bike or to save up money for a bike? Of course not. But if it overrules everything in my life, that's a problem. You know, you may, you may even want something so bad or you take something and, and you end up losing more things in your life in the end. But you just don't. It's hard to see it at the, at the forefront. You may even take something at the expense of people around you, or you may be so addicted and you desire it so badly that it could affect the church community around you. And I think the key to not having these strong cravings and these addictions and so forth is learning how to be content with what you have. You won't struggle with jealousy and coveting because you know that what you have in your life is plenty you won't say things like, oh, you know, I don't know if you hear this sometimes, oh, it must be nice to have such a nice car, good for you, you know, these little, like, oh, what's that about? Or, oh, great, I'm glad you can go on vacation, I would love to know what that's like, you know, these backhanded, like, well, okay, you know, these comments, because you make those comments when you're not content with what you got, with what you have already, and when you, when you are content with those things, you'd be thrilled for your friend who gets to go to Hawaii. Great. Enjoy it. Maybe you don't deserve it. Maybe you do. I don't know. But you get to go. <laughs> and I think if Aiken was content with what he had, I don't think there'd even be a need for him to consider. He probably would have seen it like, oh, great, and just went on with his life. But he wasn't content. Tim Keller says, we serve whatever we give the most glory to. And with the bike for me, I was giving the most glory to that bike. You know, that was so important for me. And that bike ended up getting stolen in the end anyway from me. So serves me right. So yeah, maybe it's some of our deepest desires. Maybe it's what, what's most valuable to me or what I give glory to is, is what other people think of me, these opinions of other people. But, but whatever it is, it'll directly impact how we live and if it's not God that we're bringing glory to and that we desire, then things get weird. And if we don't know how to live being content with Jesus and what he has provided, everything else just looks like a temptation for more. Yet in the end of Aiken's life, um, it just seems unfair still, doesn't it? And that brings us back to this conversation we had a few months ago, where we talked about justice. What is this justice? I think at times we're just asking the wrong questions with stories like this in the Bible because it just seems so unfair that this would happen to Achan for what he did, uh, that he had to pay for his sins this way. But I think if anything, it was unfair that Achan got to live as long as he did. And I mean that in the way that God sustained him. God gave him so much. God gave him air to breathe. The community uh, of Israel, the chosen people, I think it's, it's unfair that any of us are here that have any sort of life at all, that we get to, to breathe this air, that we get to enjoy floating down the rivers, that we get to climb mountains, that we have deep intimate relationships and friendships, that we have hobbies and we get to play and on and on. And it's unfair because of Romans Six, what Romans six says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's it's unfair that in all our stumbling, in all of our excuses and failings, we are met with the open arms of Jesus Christ. That's why it's unfair. It's because Jesus saved us. So again, the gospel project, the same treatment to be cut off from the living and cut off from the Lord's covenant is deserved by all sinners on account of the trouble we have caused both the Lord and others with our sin. Yet the Lord typically shows people great patience that we would come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Though we deserve trouble for our sin, the father sent his holy son to take our punishment in our place on the cross through the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lord turns from his burning anger against all who believe. Through faith in Jesus, we are reconciled to God. So that brings us to the last point today. Faithfulness leads to victory. So the story continues in chapter 8. I'm kind of jumping around a little bit here. But 8 verse 1 says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai.'" See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land, and you shall do it to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves, slay and ambush against the city behind it. And as soon as the king, now down to verse 14, as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early, to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open And pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in the hand toward the city. The men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. And they had no power to flee, this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai, and then down to chapter 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. So once the sin was dealt with, and Israel remained faithful, God restored them to victory. And we see this happening in various forms today. Believers resist temptation through the power of the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers come to faith in Christ Jesus through believers sharing the gospel. Believers remain faithful to Christ through persecution. Believers face face death in faith and receive the reward of eternal life in the presence of their Lord and Savior. And because of Israel's reconciliation with God, the Lord's faithfulness to his people, and their faithful obedience to the Lord's instructions, they won yet another victory in the promised land. So what does that mean for us today? As Pastor Henry would say, so what? As God's people today, we don't find ourselves in this physical battle. We don't have Eric leading us to fight uh, Christina Lake or something to overtake it. I was going to say Greenwood, but that wouldn't make sense because Eric lives in Greenwood. Uh, Well, maybe it would. Uh, You know, we're not going around taking over land. Instead, we enter into a spiritual battle. In Ephesians 6, it says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So my friends, the question we have to ask is what are we missing in taking the land around us for the kingdom? What is holding us back from seeing the surrounding area transformed by the gospel? If the way of Jesus is so compelling, if it's so powerful, if it's so amazing, it's so rich, why do we see so few people unmoved by the great love of God? Are we not putting the armor on? Are we too passive? Is it possible that we as individuals and as a community of believers are too comfortable perhaps too comfortable even in our own sin? Have we, have we thought about that, addressed that? Are you putting yourself in a position to be used by God? And how are things with you and Jesus? And of course, it's not just a matter of, you know, pulling up the boots and hitting the pavement and yelling some sort of weird Christian battle cry over the town and just doing more work, but it's all about Jesus It's all about the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through our lives and through our words and through our actions and the things that we do when we go around town and with our neighbors and and helping people and so forth. If we allow Jesus to do a work in our hearts and shape us over time, we will start to live into who we are meant to be, both as individuals and as a church community. If we love our enemies, we can bring peace. If our goal is our own needs and desires, we have little opportunity to grow. So one more quote from the Gospel Project. Finally, the narrator concluded his summary with a recognition that the land had rest from war. In a greater sense, the Bible teaches us that while creation as a whole groans and suffers right now under the futility of sin, there is coming a day when all the suffering and wars will cease When God's enemies and all evil will finally be defeated, then all of God's people, the people of faith in Jesus, will enjoy an eternity of rest, celebrating the victory and glory of our Lord. I really like that last sentence from the passage today. And the land had rest from war. This is the conclusion we hope for and long for some rest. We all could just use a little rest these days. (laughs) Just no more fighting, please. No more wars. No more wars with our words. No more wars with our politics. No more wars in our homes, in our churches, with our friends, with our own thoughts, with Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars. Like, what on earth? We just need some rest. And how do we find that rest It is only available in Christ. And although we can experience rest today in Christ, we certainly can. One day we will experience it on a far deeper level when Jesus returns and brings an end to all of these wars that we face each and every day. And that's the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can learn from this story from the sin of one man and how it affected a whole community, but Lord, ultimately, that we learn from this story is that you are good, that you love us, that you sent your son to die on the cross for us. No matter what sin we find ourselves in, no matter what struggles we face, uh, none of it is is more powerful than the power of the cross. We don't need guilt. We don't need shame. We don't need to look down on one another. We need you, Lord. We need Jesus. Uh, we need to have faith in Christ. We need to put our our trust and our hope in the cross and the resurrection. And Lord, if that is our story already, I just pray that we continue to walk in it. And Lord, if that is not our story this morning, if there are those who hear this message and don't know you, have no interaction or maybe any interest at all, Lord, I just pray that you speak to them and speak to their hearts uh, that this is an open invitation. It's a, it's a, a gift. It's, it's free, uh, and that we can find life, and we can find joy, and we can find rest in you. Lord, I thank you so much for how much you love us as a church family here, as a community. Lord, uh, you are so good, and we thank you for that, Lord, in Christ's name.